We pick up in Acts chapter 7. We left off in verse 43. So we'll pick up this morning in verse 44. We are in the midst of Stephen's answer to the accusations that this group called the Sanhedrin had made against him. The Sanhedrin, that ruling body of the Jewish people, they had made some accusations against him. Many of them trumped up. Many of them false, or all of them false, really, or are twisted, just as they had accused Jesus uh, with twisted statements. They will accuse Stephen of the same thing. They accused him of blasphemy, of a number of things. Blasphemy against Moses, who they held in high regard. And blasphemy against God. Blasphemy against the holy place or the temple, which again, they held in high regard. And blasphemy against the law. So these were the things that they accused him of. And then he has a chance to answer for himself. It's a lengthy answer. It's the longest, you can call it a sermon, longest message we have recorded in the book of Acts. And it's quite interesting. He, from memory, without preparation, without study time per se, he walks them through the history of their people as it pertains to the answer that he has to give them. So he's not able to just understand and know the Word, but he's able to apply the Word to the specific situation and the specific questions that he had to answer. And he ends up flipping the tables on them and accusing them. But I'm still impressed by the biblical knowledge of passages where we left off in 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 verse 43. That's a quote from the book of Amos chapter 5. I wonder if anyone right now, other than reading it right there, could quote anything from, from the book of Amos. But Stephen had that ability, had that word written in his heart. And it was always accessible to him. And I think for us, just by way of initial application, it's a great pursuit of your life to study, to show thyself approved unto God, a worker that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, having that word always at your fingertips. And there's only one way that happens, and that's time in the Word. Time in the Word. And so Stephen had evidently spent that, his, all of his upbringing, all of his study time, preparing him for this moment. It will be the la- his last words we read here. By the end of his sermon, he gets rushed on and killed. He's murdered. Without a trial, without many of the, the proper proceedings, he gets murdered. So we pick up, as he's been answering these things, uh, we pick up in verse 44. He begins to address the accusation of blasphemy against the temple. And so you might say that uh, this first part of, of today's message, this middle part of Stephen's sermon, has to do with the fact that you can't put God in a box. We've said that before. You know that saying, you can't put God in a box. And I think we all generally understand what that means, is that you can't restrict God. There approach toward and their reverence for the temple was bordering on, and maybe Stephen is trying to tell them, it was idolatry. They had worshipped not the God of the place, but they worshipped the place. And it became sort of this superstitious thing for them, an idolatrous thing for them, and Stephen is calling them out on it. Look how he does it. Verse 44 says, "...our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness." As he appointed, pay close attention to that, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling 
for the God of Jacob. Now just stop there. That's a long sentence, a lot of pieces and parts in that. The basic history is God had given Moses some very specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And then they built it according to the uh, instructions that he had been given. And matter of fact, Stephen says, according to the plan or the pattern that Moses had seen. So it wasn't just that God spoke and told Moses, here's what I want you to build. Here's the dimensions. And I mean, it's very detailed if you read about it in the book of Exodus. But Stephen seems to indicate that God actually showed Moses a picture, a plan of it as well. And so what God was having Moses build and the people build was a little slice of heaven on earth for God to dwell in. Dwelling over the Ark of the Testimony between the cherubim and the elaborate gold and the embroidered curtains and the layers of curtains on top of the tower. It's a very elaborate, detailed instruction that he gives to Moses. They build it. And then, then God dwells with His people as they move around. God is with them. So God is always there dwelling with his and among his people. And that's what Stephen is, is showing them. And then David comes along, and David was sitting in his house. He had a beautiful cedar paneled house, and he was thinking about God one day, and he says, You know what? I feel guilty that here I am in this beautiful house, and God lives in a tent. I think I should do something about that. And he tells Nathan, and Nathan says, Hey, David, do whatever's in your heart. Sounds good. And, and God stops Nathan. He says, hey, Nathan, wait a second. I, I didn't give the okay for that, which was an interesting thing because sometimes you'll have a good friend or you'll have a, a, a good pal and you say, you know, I'd really love to do this. Or I'd really love to do that. And you go, hey, man, just do whatever's on your heart. Whatever your heart feels like doing, do that. Don't trust your heart. Your heart is fickle. The Bible says where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Your heart is a follower. Even in Jeremiah said, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? I mean, I've talked to young couples who are sure they're in love. Their heart is telling them they're in love. But they're actually in lust. And love is, not some, is something that will, will be demonstrated over time through commitment and through loyalty. But uh, the heart can say, well, I want to go here. I want to do that. And that's what Nathan said to David. Hey, David, do whatever's in your heart. And God said, no, David, don't do what's in your heart. I don't want you to build me a, a temple. Your son's going to do it. But the, the point of this is that David, and, and Stephen uses the word dwelling, which is the same word as tent for the God of Jacob. But look at verse 47. But Solomon built him a house. And so Stephen is sort of indicating that the temple was not part of God's plan. You see, the Gentile nations would build temples or houses for their gods. And they would go into the house of their God and that's where they would meet with their God. That's where their God dwelt. They'd have little statues in there. And, and that's, that's how they would worship. And so it's very common for us to look at other people and say, well, we want to do it like them. You know, all these other nations had kings. Well, we want a king. And God was meant to rule over them. And so it's easy to get messed up or fouled up when you look at other people and what they're doing instead of looking at what God says. So God never gave instructions for the temple like He did for the tabernacle. And so they build this temple, and this becomes to them this place uh, where God dwells more powerfully. That, that they've limited Him. They've put Him in this box called a temple, and now this is a special place, and we, we worship this place because God is there. And, and look at what Stephen says. He says, Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High God does not dwell in temples made with hands 
as the prophet says, this is Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Now, wait a second. Stephen says, let's think about this. Let's just think about this on a common sense level. We're talking about God. And, and you think you're going to build God. If you can build your God a house, he's way too small. He's way too small. Because Isaiah said, heaven is my throne. Where does God sit on his throne if we can think about him that way? And before I go on, let me just make this quick note. There's a fancy word called anthropomorphism. And you may not know what that is. Don't worry about what it is. It just means to give human characteristics to something, to an inanimate object or to an animal or to God. And so in a way, we have to use that a little bit to try to understand God. We use metaphors and analogies. We talk about how there's the marriage between Christ and the church, and we use these relationship analogies to help us understand. We talk about the finger of God and, and the ear of God hearing. But the Bible tells us God dwells in unapproachable light. And but we, in order to understand God, we give him these human characteristics. And that's for us to try to understand the, the one who is so hard for us to comprehend. But the challenge with that is, is oftentimes we give him human characteristics that limit him because we think he's like us. So if we need a place to live, then we figure God must need a place to live. If we get hungry, we figure God must get hungry. And there's that old statement about in the beginning, God made man in his image, and then man returned the favor. And we then make God into our image. This is talked about all through the Old Testament. If God says, look, if I was hungry, would I need you to give me food? I mean, if I was hungry, I wouldn't need anything from you. I'm God. You are you. I don't need anything from you. And God never said he wanted a house to dwell in. That was David. David looked at God as, you know, I feel bad. I want, I want to build God a house. And God says, David, did I ever say to you, did I ever give you any inclination that somehow I was disappointed about living in a tent? That I somehow needed a, a structure to live in that was fancy and, and awesome and all? I, I never indicated that to you. God never asked for that. And here, and why would he? Because heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. The footstool, if you look at pictures of ancient thrones and, and the seats, the beautiful seats, the ornate thrones that uh, kings sat on, they would have the throne and then they would have a little stool down at the bottom and that's where they would rest their feet. And God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is the place I rest my feet. That's how big I am. If, the he if heaven's my throne and the earth is my footstool, what possibly could you build for me that could be any better or more grand than that? Where are you going to make me to dwell? My, I, I made all these things. Even Solomon, even after he built the temple, he says that as, at the dedication of 1 Kings chapter 8, he says, heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain you. Speaking of God. He says, how much less can this temple contain you? And so we get this humanistic idea because we are limited in place and time that somehow God is limited in place and time. And that he can only work powerfully in one place or another. So sometimes you think that maybe the prayers I say in the church are more powerful than the prayers I say at home. Or maybe baptism in the Jordan, as wonderful and as cool as it is, and as cold as it is actually, is somehow more powerful than baptism at Lake Monticello. 
Or somehow God is more powerful here than there. And, and God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. And there's no place specifically where He is working more powerfully than the other place. I got saved in a parking lot. God worked powerfully in my life in a parking lot because He's omnipresent. As a matter of fact, if you read back, and I read over it numerous times about David and asking to build God a temple, it almost indicates, he says, that there's going to be your son who comes from your body. I'm going to build an everlasting kingdom through him. And it seems to be indicating that actually all this was pointing to Jesus. It was Jesus, not just the temple of God himself. He said, destroy this temple and I will build it again in in three days, speaking of his body. But speaking... More so of what, church? Do you know? It's you and me. That's what Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, and coming to Him, speaking of, of God or to Jesus, as a living stone, you also as living stones are being built up into what, folks? Spiritual house. A spiritual house. So this building has no significance other than the fact that we're here. The church is us. We are the place because the Spirit of God dwells in us. We are each individually a stone in this beautiful worldwide thing called the temple, or that we would call then the temple or the house of God. It's us. It's you. It's me. One stone upon another still being built to this day. Maybe today will be a day that we add another stone to the wall, to the temple of God. And so all this pointing forward to the house, and a house doesn't necessarily always mean a physical house. The house, matter of fact, God says to to David, you want to build me a house? I'll tell you what, I'm going to build you a house. And he didn't mean a physical house, he meant a family. And it's the family of God coming through David and ultimately through Jesus to us. So we are the, the family of God. We are, God dwells in us and works through us. His presence with us. It's a beautiful thing. And that's what Stephen is saying to them. And that's offensive to them because they had, they had idolized this building. Please don't idolize the building. We can get so confused about that, you know, and, and begin to protect and guard the building. I know we're supposed to be good stewards, but it's not because somehow God is going to be offended if something happens to the building. God, God has the whole heavens and the earth to dwell in. He doesn't need this, and he doesn't need to meet with you here. He can meet with you in some of the most awkward places, can he? And he does. He does. His his presence in conviction, his presence in encouragement, his presence in salvation. All of these different, all wherever you are. So many people get worried about: Is it God's will for me to live here, or to go there, or where should I be? Maybe I'm going to miss it. And and Paul gave this great advice to me, to you. I give it to the, to the college students who are debating where should I go to school? Should it be here? Should it be there? You know, there's nothing, you, you can't turn to the book of first admissions and go, where, where am I supposed to go to college? It's hard to discern those things sometimes. But the important thing is this, no matter where you go, God is with you. If you go to this campus over here, or if you move to that state over there, or if you have to move for a job, doesn't matter where you, wherever you go, God will lead you in victory, Paul said. Wherever you go. And that to me is beautiful comfort. So now an interesting turn here, verse 51. Stephen steps out of his response to them 
And he begins the application of his sermon, or the accusation, you could say, of what he's been saying. And I wonder, I can't help but think that maybe as he said these things about the temple, he's reading their faces. Have you ever done, you've been in a conversation with someone, and, and I do it here, believe it or not. As I'm speaking, I see your faces. And, if, and I start to see some weird looks. I'm going, what am I saying right now that is troubling them? What did I just say? Because I'm reading, because your face is like, you know, did I, hmm? did I just lose them? Or I see you look like this. You know, do one of those, you turn and, mm-hmm, that was for you, right? I, I watched your faces, right? <laughs> and then, 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 oh, yeah, I know it was for me. But I watch your faces and, and I watch your responses. And 70%, did you know 70% of what you say is with your body language and not with your mouth? You're communicating to one another all the time. And I can't help but think maybe they were communicating to Stephen as he was speaking. As sometimes I receive the communication from you, sometimes I see it on your faces. There's one person that's, that's like this, mm-hmm, right on, I'm, I'm getting you, Pastor. And there's another person that's like this, you know, kind of got the, the mouth is kind of pursed and, mm, you know, I'm a little upset with what's being said or I'm not, I'm not buying it. And, and I, I imagine that's what they saw, what Stephen saw on their faces. He knew they are getting angry. You can see that on someone's face, can't you? When they're, when what you're saying is making them angry. And I think that's what he sees. <clears throat> the sermon is over. He says to them, verse 51, you stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, I'm not thinking that's going to go over well. I'm not thinking this is a touchy-feely sermon. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. He just nails them. I'm thinking, wow, you circum, you, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Speaking of Jesus who received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. Well, that's a lot of accusations against them. Interestingly, he accuses them of doing exactly what's been done throughout their history. And, and many of you know the quote, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And I think that's true of them. They have not learned from their history and now they're doomed to repeat it. Jesus told them a parable about a, a guy that plants a vineyard and then he leases it out to vine dressers and he goes away to a far country. And the way this situation worked is you'd have some land, you'd plant a vineyard, and then you'd rent it out to somebody and the payment was when it came time for harvest, you would get a portion of the harvest. And so it was a very natural thing in this parable. The owner goes away and then when it comes time for the harvest, he sends back his servants to collect some of the harvest for himself. But the problem is when the vine dresser or when the, um, the vineyard owner sends back the workers, his servants, to get the, the uh, harvest, they, they kill one, they stone another, they beat them, they just continue to abuse the servants. And finally, the, the owner of the vineyard says, you know what, I'll send my son. Surely they'll listen to him. And they took the son, they said, ah, this is the heir to the property. Let's take him outside the vineyard and let's kill him. And that's what they did in the parable. They took the son of the, the vineyard owner, they took him outside and they killed him. And then Jesus asked him the question, he says, what, what should I do? What should the vineyard owner do? And they said, well, they, he should take the vineyard away from those people and give it to someone else. And then they realized that Jesus was talking about them. 
It's called a judicial parable. He made them condemn themselves through this story. And, and that's exactly what his point was. Who were the servants that were being sent? Those were the prophets. Those were Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets that had been sent and killed or abused or beaten. They rejected everyone that spoke for God. They accepted the ones that were the false prophets, the ones who just told them what they wanted to hear. And they rejected the ones that actually spoke for God continually throughout their history and killed them. And so much so that even when he spoke finally through his son, they crucified him. And that's what Stephen is saying to them. Interesting, he says to them, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Stiff-necked was a common picture for them. Goes right back to the golden calf, the book of Exodus. That's God's accusation against them. They are stiff-necked, meaning they can't be controlled. They can't be turned. They can't be um, worked with. They're resistant. And that's why he says you always resist the Holy Spirit. They've been resistant and uncircumcised in heart and ears. A a picture they would be very familiar with, circumcision. uh, But normally that's spoken of uh, in a biological way. But here, what does it mean to have an uncircumcised heart? I mean, you can't reach in there and circumcise the heart and ears. Well, circumcision speaks of a cutting away of something that covers over. And to expose that which is underneath. And so an uncircumcised heart is there's a covering over it protective covering over it, and then to have that circumcised is to have it cut away to expose what's underneath. And then the same thing with the ears, that covering to be to have circumcised ears would be to have the covering over your ears removed so you can hear. The covering over your heart removed so you can feel. And so to have uncircumcised heart and ears, what he's saying about them is you can't, you're not getting what I'm saying, you're not listening to what I say, And you're not understanding with your heart what I'm telling you. You're not receiving it into yourself. And that's why he says to them, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And interesting, he says, you resist, he doesn't say you always resist me or you always resist the prophets. You always resist the word. Stephen boldly says, hey, it's the Spirit of God that is coming after you right now. To, to be a follower of Jesus, to understand what, what His Word says. Remember, the Bible says, Peter said, that holy men wrote as they were inspired, as they were, the word literally means like wind in the sails, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is a Spirit-breathed book. The Spirit of God moved in the lives of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Spirit of God moving in their lives. So the, the Word of God is fully God and it's fully man in that it's the personalities of the writers that are coming through. God didn't change their personalities, but He used them and He breathed out His Word through them, moving them. So Stephen can very accurately say, it's not me, just as I can accurately say to you this morning, because I have the Word of God and that's what we're reading from. It's not me speaking to you this morning. If you resist what, what is being said this morning, you're not resisting the pastor. You're resisting the Spirit of God speaking to you. And isn't it interesting that you can? You can't put God in a box. You, you can't um, put, limit God. You can't restrict God, but you can resist God. And that's what he says here. You always resist the Holy Spirit, just as your fathers did. So now the question is uh, about all this. He said these things. Uh, he's made these accusations. Was he right? Was he right about what he said about them? Because it could be that Stephen just 
you know, he, had, he misread them. He, he, you know, you've had that happen to you. Someone's made an accusa- accusation against you and they were wrong. So the question is, is Stephen right or wrong about what he's accused them of? Are, and the question is, are they going to respond to that accusation that he's made or to, to his to his application, are they going to respond in a good way or a bad way? And that will tell you if he was right or wrong. That to me is so interesting in how a person responds to correction tells you a lot about who they are. And are they open to the Word of God or not? You learn a lot about someone when there's division. You learn a lot about you know, when things are going well, when things are going along smoothly, it kind of is easy to just roll with that. But when there's a division, when there's a conflict, that's oftentimes when you really learn what's, what a person's, do they really care about the Word of God and God Himself? Or are, are, are they not caring about, do they just care about themselves and their own will? And are they resistant? So I, I think the next verses give us the answer to these things. Was Stephen right? Would they respond? Did, did he call it wrong? Were their hearts truly circumcised? Did they really want what God wanted? Were they really willing to hear what the sermon, what was being said? Well, look at verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. That sounds good. That I'm hopeful. The, the meaning sawn in two. Oh, you, you've heard a sermon like that. I've heard sermons like that. First sermon I ever, you know, I still remember the first sermon I ever heard 22 years ago. Isn't that crazy? I don't remember anything between now and then, but I remember that sermon. It was in the book of Philippians. Helga and I were sitting there together in the church and, and we were convicted about not grumbling or complaining. I still remember that sermon because when I heard it, when we heard it, we were cut to the heart because we realized, whoa, we do that. We grumble and we complain. And, it, and God says it doesn't glorify him when his people grumble and complain. So, wow, we were, cut, we were cut to the heart in a sense. And so I like what I see. They were cut to the heart. But the next part is really, really discouraging. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. You do that when you're really, really angry. Like so angry you can't even talk. You just grind your teeth like this. I'm so angry right now at you. Like that's gnashing the teeth. So they, this whole group is now gnashing at him with their teeth. I'm thinking he's, he's, was his sermon a success or a failure? What do you think? <laughs> I think it was a success. Maybe if some people, you know, these are the people in your, when you speak to someone about Jesus and they get really angry, you've hit a nerve. You've touched on something deep and they can either lay it down and surrender or maybe they'll resist you. They gnashed their teeth at him, but he, the contrast, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. He's not even looking at them gnashing their teeth. You've got to get your eyes off that person who's angry at you and get your eyes off that situation that's happening. Get your eyes on the Lord. That's how Stephen gets through this. That's how he deals with this because he's got his eyes on the Lord. He's looking up to heaven. This is what Paul says to the Colossians. He set your, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. I notice for me, when things start to really deteriorate is when I get my eyes off the Lord. When I get it on the situation or the problem or, or the fear or the anxiety or, or what someone else is doing or what someone else is not doing that they should be doing, man, it just starts to mess me up. I got to get my eyes back on the Lord. And maybe someone here this morning, just you just need to get your eyes You've had your eyes on people. 
and you're watching their reactions and you're watching their responses and you're trying to please them, get your eyes on the Lord. He's the only one you need to please. And if you're pleasing Him, everything else will fall right in the line. There'll be some that hate you and others that appreciate you. But the point is that you're pleasing the Lord. You'll never please people consistently and regularly. His eyes are gazing into heaven and He saw the glory of God and Jesus noticed this standing at the right hand of God. You don't ever read about Jesus. It's the only place you read about Jesus standing. We know Jesus is there seated at the right hand of God. He ascended into heavens and is seated at the, at the right hand of the throne of glory there next to God. Again, anthropomorphism, he's seated there. And commentaries argue about and discuss why was Jesus standing? Was it to, was it, you know, because he was on the edge of his seat, so to speak, you know, watching what Stephen was going through? Was it because, you know, he was waiting to receive Stephen to himself? We don't know, but the point is, is that he sees Jesus there. He sees Jesus there. He's been, re- he's been crucified. He's been resurrected. And now he has, he has ascended and he's standing there at the right hand of the Father standing there at the throne. And then he says, and I'm sure this doesn't help, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, a messianic term, standing at the right hand of God. Now Jesus said to to the Pharisees, he spoke about this. They said, are you God? He says, you know, I'm I'm the Messiah and and I will be seated there at at the right hand of God. You'll, You'll see me seated there until I come in glory. That's a paraphrase. And so when Stephen says this, they've got two choices. Either he's right, and they know he is, and then they have to accept what he said, or they have to accuse him of blasphemy because that's what they did to Jesus. And that's what they go for. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. They were already stopped, but you know how that works, right? La, 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 I'm not listening to you anymore. La, 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 la. They stopped, they could not bear to hear anymore, so they scream, they stop their ears, so was Stephen right or wrong about them? He was right. He called it right, and their response, their behavior proves it. Actions, as we know, speak louder than words. You can say anything you want, but the truth will be shown in what you do, how you respond. Uh, a dog isn't considered a good dog because he's a good barker. And a person isn't considered a godly person because they're a good talker. It just stands to reason. And so they prove the truth of what Stephen was saying. They stop their ears. They run at him with one accord. They've never been so unified. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Wait a second. Where was the trial? Where was the 24-hour waiting period? Where was the getting Rome involved because they weren't allowed to carry out capital punishment? They were so impulsively angry. And those of us in here that struggle with anger know this feeling. When, when you get angry, you get impulsive and you do things that you regret when you're angry. And that's what we see these guys doing. They were so angry. They were so incensed. They lost control. They had an outburst of anger. They run at him, they cast him out of the city, and they pronounce judgment on him right then, right there. No vote, uh, no, no waiting period, uh, which was supposed to be 24 hours before they could actually carry out the sentence. And they stoned him. And I can only imagine 
the, the feel, being stoned to death is a horrible way to die. Horrible way to die. But he's um, living the life of Christ, being crucified. Horrible way to die. I wonder if we were to ask Stephen today, do you regret what you said? You know, if you knew now, if we could go to heaven and interview him. Stephen, if you knew what was going to happen after your sermon, if you, would you have not said the whole uncircumcised ears thing? Would you have laid off of the, would you go, man, you know, I was a little too harsh, you know? Uh, you think he would have regretted what he said? I don't think so. This guy was filled with the Spirit. I think this, this, this Saul of Tarsus who's watching is, is learning a lot of things right now that he's not willing to admit yet, but he will. They stone him to death. Uh, the, the witnesses would be the first uh, to cast, the, the first stone would be dropped on the heart. And if, the heart, if that didn't kill him, then others would, the rest of the, the group would join in and throw the stones until the person died. And, and it's such a physical, you know, it's, it's not a, um, a, a very uh, simple way to do things. It was in, very labor intensive. Verse 59, or verse, the rest of that verse 58 says, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So they had to get undressed a little bit so they could get these stones up and start throwing them. So they had to take off their garment, lay it down so they could, you know, be ready to, to be physically active in throwing these stones at this innocent man, Stephen, that they were killing. But Saul is introduced here. Saul was there. We're going to meet him again. I, I'm, I'm going to hesitate to get ahead of myself. Stick around. Chapter 9, we'll see the story is not over for this young man. Saul, by the way, he does say he's a young man. He's between 25 and 40 years old, according to the Greek word. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knew where he was going. He had seen Jesus there. He knew. He is part now of that cloud of witnesses. What would he say to us? As that, that cloud of witness, he, he would say, Steve, run your race with endurance. Casting off every sin and every weight that weighs you down. And continue to, to run your race. He would encourage us. You think he'd go, man, I'm so disappointing. I really miss earth. I really miss things on earth. You know, I'm, I know I'm here with God, but you know, it's not as good as I thought. It's really not living up to my expectations. You think Stephen is getting moved into a much better location. He's now with the Lord. We all talk about wanting to be in the presence of oh, church in the presence of the Lord. Well, when you, when you go to be with the Lord, you're, you're in His presence. I mean, that's what we've always asked for. That's what we've always wanted as Christians. To be in the presence, unadulterated presence of Jesus Christ. Not, not ruined by sin. Not ruined by flesh. Not ruined by humanness. Just the pure presence of God. That's where he goes. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just as, as Jesus had cried. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Is that what you would have said? I don't know that that's what I would have said. I can't say, you know, you, you never know. When you, it's always easy to, to suppose what you might do if you were in a situation. We're always a lot more courageous when it's happening to somebody else. Well, if I was in that situation, here's what I would do. But you never really know what you're going to do till you get into that situation. And let me encourage you. It was Corey Tenboom, 
who asked her father as they were harboring Jewish refugees from the Holocaust. And she told her dad as they were getting on the train, she said, Dad, I don't know if I have enough faith to die for what we believe. And her wise father <clears throat> says to her, Corey, when we get on the train, when do I give you the ticket? Well, you, you give it to me right when we get on. She's a young girl. You give me my ticket right as we're boarding the train. And he said, right. I give it to you when you need it. When, God, when you need the faith to die, God will give you the faith you need to die for your faith. So sometimes we look at a situation and go, how can I ever get through that? How can I ever deal with that? How can I ever you know, handle that? And I just want to encourage you that just as Stephen was given this tremendous grace to die for the Lord, so will you be if you're His follower. The grace for whatever situation you need at the time. He doesn't give us the grace ahead of time. He gives it to us when we need it. And I pray that, that the forgiveness that was on Christ's lips, this is, this is uh, everyday stuff, really, not just when you're, you're being stoned to death. Uh, this is everyday stuff. He cried out and He said, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. When's the last time someone sinned against you and you said, get them, God. I hope they get what they deserve. That's vengeance. So Stephen just simply says, Lord, don't charge him with this. It just reveals what's in Stephen's heart. And then he says he fell asleep. He was really tired. Is that what the, just Stephen? He was tired. It was a long day, long sermon, you know. After sermon, he's got to take a nap. You know that this means he died. But it's a euphemism or an idiom for death. And it's appropriate because for the believer, this is the wording used all throughout the New Testament that believers don't die, they fall asleep in the Lord. I love that picture because I've never been scared to go to bed at night. I look forward to it. I can't wait to crawl into bed, do a little reading, close my eyes, and then while I'm asleep, things are happening, dogs coming and going, thing, the world is happening around me. You know, it is when you're in a deep sleep like that, like things are happening. People are, you know, putting shaving cream on your hand and tickling your nose with a hair and making you, you you've been on youth retreats, right? So what do they do to you when you're asleep on a youth retreat? I fell asleep one time in college. I was studying with some other people and I fell asleep while I was in the room and I woke up and uh, as I was walking back to my room, I looked down and my toenails had been painted. Black, nonetheless. I didn't even know what was happening. I mean, I didn't know it because I was asleep. But then the, the beautiful thing about it is you, you sleep, time passes. But to you, it doesn't feel like time is passing. It's like just a moment. Just a, you, you fall asleep and all of a sudden it's morning time. And you do what, folks? You wake up. And that's the picture of falling asleep is number one, you don't have to be scared. We're not scared to fall asleep because we know when we go to sleep, we're going to wake up. And, and that's the, the, the beautiful thing about this is that it says he fell asleep, meaning that he was going to wake up where folks to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And we have that hope to encourage us. And then this, uh, this verse eight, uh, verse one, excuse me, of chapter eight says, now Saul was consenting to his death. So Saul was there. He was not just watching. He was not just taking care of the clothes of all the people that were there. This young man was saying, Amen. This guy deserves to die. Now Jesus had warned His disciples about this. He had said to them in John chapter 15 and then into chapter 16, there's going to come a day, guys, to His disciples, that they're going to kill you. They're going to put you out of the synagogue. And they're going to kill you thinking they do service to God. They're thinking they're going to do God a favor 
by killing you. And I'm sure as all this was happening, there were questions, there was confusion, there was, or maybe, maybe they said, well, God, how could you let this happen? But maybe they said, God, this is what we expected to happen. This is what you told us would happen. See, us in America, we say, well, God, how could you let this happen? But I think at that time, they said, well, I guess this is what we were told was going to happen. And now it's happening. And when it happens, it's like, and Jesus even said, I'm telling you this ahead of time so that when it happens, you remember I told you. This is what's going to happen. And Saul was there watching how Stephen died and asking himself, am I that confident? Do I know where I'm going to go when I die? Do I really know God the way I think I know Him? And he's asking him, he's asking those questions deep inside his heart. No one knows it. On the outside, man, he's got it all together. He's this zealot, zealous guy. He's thinking he's doing God a favor by destroying Christianity. But inside, he's got questions. Inside, he's being challenged. I'll read just a few more verses and we'll close. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. There's so much more to say about that which we'll uncover as we go through. The word to make havoc of speaks of being torn apart by wild animals. That's how Paul, or at this time Saul, he was so angry and so determined to destroy anybody else who believed like Stephen. Like hunting wild animals, he would go into the houses and go into the churches and uh, to the, well, the house churches and drag people out and drag them off to put them in prison. Saul was to be feared. He was truly a terrorist to the Christian, to the church at that time, to the Christians at that time. But I want to end with this thought. One of my favorite verses in a verse, you have them, life verses, verses I come back to all the time, uh, is Romans 8.28. For God works all things together for good to those that love Him and are called according to His purposes. So you wonder, you know, God, how could you let this happen to Stephen? But look at the result. As a result of his death, as a result of the persecution that starts now, what happens the disciples, other than the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but all the other disciples, there was this mass exodus out of Jerusalem. And where did they go? They went to Judea. They went to Samaria. And what were they doing when they went? They were preaching the word. Look at verse 4 of chapter 8. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. You can kill the messengers, but you can't stop the message. I would rather fail, as it's been said, serving a cause that ultimately wins than win in serving a cause that ultimately fails. And so God used Stephen's death and the persecution that followed to spread, the word speaks of scattering like seed, to spread the word out into Judea or out to Samaria and begin to spread the word out. And that's what we get to in chapter 8. So whatever it is in your life, as long as you're called according to the purposes of God, and because and, it may not be what you want. It may not be working out the way you thought. The question is, is God using it for his purposes? God used Stephen's death for his purposes to spread the word and the persecution also used for that. So that just really, I have to keep, I have to keep hold of that because things we go through are confusing, aren't they? We go, God, how could you let this happen? 
But he's got his plan. For Stephen, it's the best day of his life. His life on earth ended and his life in eternity began. He just changed addresses. He fell asleep here and woke up there. And I don't think he was disappointed one bit, do you? Amen? Amen. Uh, let's pray and I'll invite the praise team to, to come up on stage. Father, your word is just so good to us. And uh, we, thankful, we are thankful for guys, uh, men and women that have gone before us like Stephen that, that serve as that great cloud of witnesses encouraging us on to uh, not live distracted lives, to not live mediocre lives, to not uh, uh, live half-hearted Christian lives, but to run our race with endurance, Lord, to continue to make it to the finish line, Lord. That you're cheering us on, that Stephen is there cheering us on. And I pray that this uh, would all be an encouragement to us in Jesus' name.